0: brought to you by LifeTree at pain, ridiculous, Attention to jesus.com. My name is Rick. I'm author of the Jesus-centered life, the upcoming book Spiritual Grit which releases April 24th. We'll be telling you guys who and gals who are fans of this uh, uh, of this podcast or even if you're a first-time listener, we'll be telling you a little bit more as we get uh, into April about how you can be part of the launch team for Spiritual Grit. That we have some special stuff in store for uh, those of you who would like to to be a part of the, the the little you know ragtag bunch of folks that would like to help launch this book in uh, late April. So it comes out April twenty fourth. We'll be telling you in future podcasts how you can be a part of that. I would love for you guys to be a part of this, and you can play a very key, crucial role. But I, and I'm also the editor, uh, the general editor of the Jesus Centered Bible. Uh, which uh, came out about three years ago, and is a Bible reading experience like no other. <laughs> it has extra features in it that really help you to center center your reading experience around Jesus, no matter where you are in the Bible. So today is a banner day. We have our third short conversation with my friend Michael Kiefer, who's author of our three just-released Jesus-Centered Guides. These uh, little books are actually birthed from this podcast. They, they came out of responses from people on this podcast and the number of people who listen to certain episodes of this podcast, we realize some of these episodes that we've done have been listened to by way more than than the average uh, listenership for an episode, and it's because they focused on these three basic things in our Christian life that even though they're basic, we don't know that much about. So the three are, um, how do I pray, how do I read the Bible, And today's focus, how do I know God's will? And actually, we did a a podcast episode, and I think in our first season, on how to know God's will, and that is the most listened to uh, episode that we've done in three years. So obviously, it's a big deal. We all want to know God's will, and we often find that we don't know how to do it, (laughs) that we don't have a great track record with it. So we know that life is full of twists and turns, and You know, not all of them lead to Disneyland. So some of those turns take us over a cliff, and we're desperate to avoid cliffs in our life. So we want to know and understand and follow the will of God. Because we're Jesus followers, we're sometimes acutely aware that the following part of being a Jesus follower is confusing and frustrating and sometimes kind of fraught with potholes, uh, we, we don't always have a, a great sense of what that is to do, even though we call ourselves followers. So let's give a listen to my conversation with Michael about finding and following God's will, and then we'll explore the surprising and shocking help that Jesus gives us who are trying our best to follow him. Let's listen. So, Michael. Uh, yes. Here, here's an interesting thing. Knowing God's will, that seems like, to people who are not followers of Jesus, or, mm-hmm. uh, or even some followers of Jesus, it still sounds like it's nuts, it, only nutcases oh, yeah. really know what God's will is and are following it, and, but to people who love Jesus and are following Him, it seems like the most normal thing in your day to be following Jesus and follow, uh, finding out and following His will. So talk a little bit about, wh- what is it actually to find and follow God's will. what What is that?
1: Well, I think you're right that um, that it definitely can get you institutionalized, depending on who's <laughs> listening to you. But I don't know, I wouldn't agree with you. I, I think that most of us who follow Jesus, we're not as confident about God's will as, mm. as we wish we were, mm-hmm. that there's a, a sense in which, usually when people use the term, I want to know God's will, what they're really referring to is, God, I have a situation or a dilemma. I have something, and I want to know what you want me to do. And if you'll tell me what to do, I'll 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 get busy and do it. And do I stay in this marriage or do I bail? Do I do I change jobs or do I stay where I am? Do I do I buy this house? Is it going to be a good idea? Is it going to be a terrible idea? Do so,
0: I do I get the donut with the sprinkles or the donut without the sprinkles? Oh, God's will is you get both. There's no
1: question in the donut department. <laughs> And there's this implied promise that we have, which is our promise. If you'll tell me what to do, I'll do it. And I don't know about your experience, Rick, but mine is uh, not so much. Mm -hmm. I mean, because it's not like God has not told us what to do when it comes to his will. We got the Ten Commandments, and that depending on—you talked to Tom Christensen, right? Yeah. Okay, and when he talked about his book, Unreasonable Jesus, he talked about how Jesus kind of elevated— an awful lot of the stuff that people were taking as rules, and he took it to internal and said, this is really about who you are and about your thoughts and your passions as well as your behavior. Hmm. And if I apply that, I'm pretty sure I've broken nine out of the ten commandments, and the other one's generously clinging to maybe I haven't. Well, I knew what to do, and and I didn't do it. I, I know that uh, Jesus has said, love God with all I am, and... Uh, my neighbor is my. I don't do that,
0: I don't do that all the so time. So, there's a, this kind of implied uh transaction when yes. we're following Jesus that we say, no, The only problem I have, Jesus, is I don't really know what you want me to do, right? That's the only problem because if I knew what you wanted me to do, then of course I would go do it. And you're suggesting, Well, that's a kind of a that that's kind um, of a... um,
1: <laughs> I put that in the bogus department based on my, <laughs> my own life. And, and, and that, I think that's okay, because it's not a surprise to God. If our behavior were enough to save us, Jesus wouldn't have come down yeah. on a cross. So uh, it, I, when we talk about doing God's will and hearing God's will, oftentimes it, it is about a decision, a crisis point. And I have come to believe that our behaviors, because they're never going to, to really rescue us, that it really comes down to relationship. I mean, I don't know for sure from day to day exactly what God wants me to do, but I do know he wants to be in it with
0: me. And we do know that it, it, this just makes practical sense, and we'll talk about this some more, but the, mm-hmm. we do know that the closer we are to him in our relationship, the the more ability we have to follow his will. It just makes yeah. sense. Yeah, that, yeah. That's true of in, in every relationship. If you know, If you're guessing what your wife would like for her birthday as a gift, it really is wholly dependent on how well you know her. Well, it's
1: uh, we've been married 35 years this year. Her birthday is next week. Ah. I'm in panic mode. Oh. Yeah, because I, I know her really well. But I have not learned to read her thoughts. <laughs> so so you, you, did she ask you to mention this? Because the not timing at is all, awkward. I swear. Okay. My
0: wife's birthday is in about 10 days, too. Oh. So you know what I've noticed about this, too, is that when we're buying a gift for someone that we really care about, we think that it will be easy. Mm-hmm. And then it then when you realize, oh, this is harder than I thought, and because we don't want to disappoint yeah, by getting them a gift they don't really want, because then it says... Oh, you don't really know me, mm. and I think we've all, especially as men, had these moments where we've gotten a gift for an uh, important uh, person in our life, either a girlfriend or our spouse, and and it didn't hit the it didn't hit it, and and then you feel like oh I've just said I don't know you very well, so it's part of this is like really being drawn into studying mm. the person mm-hmm. at a deeper level and thinking even more creatively as you think about who they are and kind of remembering who they are in a way, because we kind of forget who people are, even the people who are close to us. Oh, sure. I think we've moved into a different podcast, but you're absolutely (laughs) right.
1: (laughs) That's good. (laughs) Well, here's what I know about God. And when it comes to doing His will, I know that God's intent is to transform me from the inside out into His image. And He can use almost anything to do that, including leaving me just hanging between options sometimes when I'm trying to make a decision. yeah, That can be, I think you call those um, grit <laughs> moments. Uh, that, strangely enough. In, strangely yeah. enough. That's where I grow. And yeah. so I, I'm not surprised when I come to God and say, tell me what to do here. And what I hear is, well, let's let's talk about it. And, uh, you know, what, what do you think you ought to do? I mean, I, that's okay with me. I'm not disappointed. God never promised a roadmap to me.
0: Yeah, so one of the things that I love about these three little uh, Jesus-centered practical guides that you've written is that they're chock-full of things that you can do. Like, they're not books that say, do everything in the book. Mm -hmm. It's more like this vast Chinese restaurant menu where you can choose a number of things that you like off the menu and try them as an experiment, and this book is no different. It it has all kinds of little and big experiments that Mm -hmm. you can try— to to uh, begin to understand God's will better in your life, and I wonder if you could give me some of those ideas that you would consider maybe low hanging fruit. From hmm. the book. So specific things from the book? Yeah, if you want, or or in in whatever way you want to. Oh, that's De- dangerous. Des- describe what some of the sort of um, um, the, the more accessible ways that we might try to understand and follow. The, the will of God?
1: Well, I, I think definitely on the list, and you get a lot of opportunity to do this with these, these ideas in the book. Uh, it's a good idea to ask. Just ask, and then actually pay attention <laughs> if, if there's a response. And can I tell you a story about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. This is a, I'm, I'm going to make this as quick as I can. Yeah. Uh, back in the day, a friend of mine and I used to do something we called the Great Gonzo Water Balloon Fight. We would do it once a summer and he and I would spend all Friday night filling pickup truck beds full of water balloons. Oh, and my gosh. Oh, it was, Yeah, now I find out you can do it really easily. But we then would stop by a farmer's market. We'd load up on food, and we'd invited a bunch of people. We'd meet at a pavilion in a park. We, we cleaned up after ourselves. I see that concern in your eyes. Mm-hmm. And <clears throat> we, uh, we just had this big water balloon fight, and it was great fun. And we would every year invite dignitaries knowing they would not come, but they would send the strangest notes explaining why they couldn't. The mayor, (laughs) mayor, we get a letter on mayor, mayoral letterhead saying, The mayor would love to come to the great Gonzo water balloon fight, but is doing important things. (laughs) I made the mistake of inviting the president of the United States. Oh my gosh. Well, here's what I didn't know that counts as a threat on the president's life, implying that you are going to throw a water balloon. At the president is exactly like uh, saying that you're going to shoot at the president.
0: Wow, this explains that six-year gap in your resume, Michael. <laughs> <laughs> well, I got a call from the Secret Service,
1: and they had an office in Cincinnati at the Fed building. And uh, the guy you know, called and said, did you write this letter? And you know, he's reading it to me, and he's explaining this to me. And I said, uh, are you at the federal building? He said, yeah. I said, well, I want you to go to the window, look east. Imagine yourself throwing a water balloon from Cincinnati at the White House. And what do you think the odds are you're going to nail the president if he's (laughs) leaning out the window? These guys have no sense of humor. Yes. And they actually opened a case to investigate. I was cleared. Uh, There is no—
0: Do not joke with federal investigators or IRS
1: agents. No. Well, no. IRS (laughs) is particularly timely right now. But Secret Service people are just uh, not interested. Well, here's what I got wrong. I wasn't expecting a response. Mm. So when one came, I (laughs) was completely baffled about what to do about it. And And I have since thought, that's pretty much me and God. Yeah. You know, I invite God into a decision or I ask God for guidance and what I, and then when God shows
0: up, I don't know what to do with it. Yeah, this is interesting because one of the things I wanted to ask you about is what the role of faith is. Oh, huge! In 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 this knowing of God's will, and we talk about faith in such a generic way, like a Broadway. We even say the faithful when mm-hmm. uh, news media we call Christians the faithful sometimes, and we yeah. talk about our faith as if it's a thing. You know, it's like uh, the thing that defines. But but what what is faith? because I think you're touching on it right there that you when we ask we don't really expect something back right and and there's something simple about faith I think we make it like overly difficult and I think that story starts to hint at what it is so in your mind what is the role of faith in all of this I think the role of faith is the role of
1: relationship hmm. and and that is um, you know I, I got to tell you I don't really know that much about the will of God I wrote the book. No one's supposed to admit this, but I believe the truth is that God speaks to people in a lot of ways. Yeah. And depending on what your relationship is with him, Rick, or Tom's relationship or Dick's relationship or Nancy's relationship, God has an infinite arsenal of opportunity to speak to you in the way that you're actually going to be able to see and hear and, and discern. Yeah. And for for me, the role of faith is not seeing God as other, but but looking at my life as something that God and I are doing together. Now, Trish and I, my my beloved wife, whose birthday I will not forget. Of course, you won't. Yeah, no. especially now that it's on a podcast. That's right. And Bev, right? She knows. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Okay. So, um, uh, some friends of ours invited us to go ballroom dancing, which is uh, I knew was a bad idea from the get-go, but it was a free class down at the Odd Fellows, which should have told me something too. And so we went and there's this sense with ballroom dancing, this instructor explained that there's only one leader, but there's two participants. And, and this couple, I don't know how they did this, they were elegant and they were graceful. And he's explaining, the, the guy said, you know, the man is always the leader, which of course really helped Trish enjoy this experience. And, and you just kind of move a hand or you just sort of touch a, your partner's back and guide that person. Mm-hmm. We did not have straightened out who the leader was. Trish knew I wasn't competent, and I proved that. And I knew that um, I was going to be the leader, even if I wasn't going to be the only guy there with a with a partner who wasn't, you know, somehow trying to direct this. Mm -hmm. We looked more like sumo wrestlers out there. (laughs) We did graceful people. That's how I view the role of faith in knowing God's will. It's I am dancing with with God. And God is very capable at any moment of stopping me in my tracks, pointing me a direction and pushing me that way. Mm. And he has the right to do it. But he doesn't. What he does is allow me to cooperate in this dance, this opportunity to create a life with him. And the more I am faithful in letting him nudge me, the mm-hmm. more I'm attentive the better
0: it's going to go. And what's interesting about even your illustration there is that the, the, a good dancer, the, the nudge is very subtle, it's, mm-hmm. it's, and you have to learn how to follow that nudge, the yes. subtle nudge. I remember there was this woman in my, uh, my church who I had never met before, but uh, the pastor asked her to tell her story. Uh, so she told her five-minute story. She was a professional dancer, and she was telling the story of how she first learned how to dance the tango, Wow. The tango is a very uh, sort of mutually dependent form of dance. Um, if you're going to dance the tango, you have to pay really close attention to each other, because that's the form of dance it is, as opposed to sort sort, sort of the waltz, which has some common steps to it that you mm. can each follow. Mm-hmm. The tango takes sort of improvisation in the moment. So she had never danced the tango before, and so she went to this master instructor, and um, after the first 15 minutes he stopped and he told her i can tell that you've had you have a very close relationship with your father and she said what well, how how do you know that and he said because you are relaxed in letting me guide you and so what she what what he was trying to say is that you are not stiff and tense mm-hmm. um as you try to follow what i'm doing and that means that you had a very close, intimate relationship with your father, and she was sharing this story to say this was a revelation to her about her own relationship with Jesus. That the closer she is to Jesus, the more she allows Him or can sense Him guiding and directing her. So it was a very powerful story. I've ne- I've never forgotten that metaphor because I think it's true for my own life with Him mm-hmm. as well. That is a that is an absolutely stunning visual. Yeah. So the, the, one of the things that I was thinking about, too, when we were talking about low-hanging fruit and high-hanging fruit, you know, the, mm-hmm. the things in your book that are sort of accessible, maybe some things that are a stretch, I think one accessible thing would be uh, simply Scripture, that oh we, yeah you yeah. kind of mentioned this already that there's mm-hmm. some things that we already know are his yeah. his will, and they're kind of laid out there and and if it, some of it is just paying better attention yep. to what we're reading and then we we kind of already know some big things about what's true about his will and like when he says, if you want to love people like I do, then you'll love your enemies. Well, so when we're dealing with somebody who we would consider an enemy, we don't often have to go to Jesus and say. Now, should I love my enemy or not? Because You know, because he's yeah. kind of spelled it out. Yeah, so It's
1: there. It's there. And, and that I hate to use the word application because yeah, yeah. That, that can turn into a lot of rules, but certainly informing your life. So reading Scripture is a huge place to go, and I certainly would encourage people, we do in the book, encourage folks to pay attention, especially to what Jesus says. Pay attention to... Um, what God does in the lives of people. And that will tell you a lot about who they are. And you can pretty much be sure that that's exactly who they are right now, too, as far as, as guiding you. And the will comes into focus. There's nothing in the Scripture, if i went looking, to say, Michael, how, how much porn should you watch? I mean, how much is acceptable? <laughs> but, but there's a great deal about lust. And there's a great deal about, about uh, treating people justly. And I don't have it's not a big stretch. The Holy Spirit will really nudge you toward truths
0: and reveal them to you. but you got to spend some time in the Bible. Yeah. Let me ask you one last question here. Sure. Um, the, I had a, not long ago, I was leading a, a kind of a training for some church volunteer leaders. They were small group leaders. Mm-hmm. So this church asked me to come and help train their leaders in a more Jesus-centered, interactive, experiential way, how, how to help them break out of, a normal leadership pattern of uh, simply talking at people or asking questions that don't get very good answers. And um, so I was leading him through this experience, and one of the things we did was experiment in a more Jesus-dependent way of praying, which takes some faith, but basically you're asking Jesus first how to pray for somebody before you just start you know, brainstorming your prayer. So I was teaching them how to do this, and then they they experienced how to do it. And afterward, a guy came up to me, and and he waited a while until everyone else was gone to ask me this question. And he said, he said, I struggled with that last thing because I struggle with actually feeling like I can hear, quote unquote, hear um, Jesus's guidance, hear His voice. Mm-hmm. So I struggle when somebody asks me to. Get guidance from Jesus and then pray for somebody about that. He said, How do I know if it's really Jesus' voice? And how do I? And what I, you can sense things about people. And I, sure. I sensed in this guy that um, he had kind of had some disappointment in how to do this. And then he had developed a kind of a skepticism, hmm. almost like, I can't hear Jesus' voice. And so you realize, well, that there's a big hurdle he has to overcome. That if oh, you believe yeah. you can't, then it's likely you won't. So if a guy like that came up to you and said, well, what, what do you think I could do? What's the first step I could, I could take toward having some understanding of, of Jesus' will when I feel like I, I have a hard time with it? What would you say to him? Well, first I tell
1: him <clears throat> that, um, that, that you don't always get exclamation point moments. Yeah. I've had a handful where I believe I absolutely heard from God, and it was very specific go do this now, Yeah, and I never got an explanation with any of them, by the way. yeah, The question was when I was going to go do it, not, yeah. not that I would ever see how it panned out in the end. Yeah, I would tell this per- I would ask this person some questions, and one of the questions I would ask would be, um, how do you view God? Hmm. Do, you, do you view God as someone who wants to communicate with you, or do you see him as distant, do yeah. you see him as critical? I think that's a great place to start. Because there are definitely people in the world who, and I think we've we've talked about this. There was a Baylor study where about seventy-five percent of Americans, there's no reason they want to hear from God hmm. because they see him as critical or authoritative or distant, and and so you can be non, you can be in a place when how you view God gets in the way. That's an obstacle. So I would I would incur I would talk with
0: them about that. And what's interesting about that too, that just made me think of this as you were talking is that. Jesus never forces himself on us, Never. and so if we are fundamentally pushing him away, it's not like he's going to grab your hand and put it down and say, I'm coming anyway. Yeah. The, the real issue and challenge there is, how can we lower our hand and start to invite him more, whatever it is that has kept us from doing that? And sometimes there's painful thing, things in our past yep. that keep our hand up with him. But he's not going to overrule your hand. So somehow the hand's gotta drop. And I would also follow
1: that back up after talking with him about how you've used God and what is your defensive posture <laughs> toward hearing from Jesus or God. I would I would ask this person, uh, is there any trauma in your life? do, do you do you fundamentally trust? Yeah. Do you see that God wasn't there for you at a time? This probably would not be a quick conversation, but it gets at those things that are the obstacles. Yeah. And then you know Jesus is pretty clear that that his disciples need to uh, to learn to hear his voice, and there's a lot of voices screaming. Yeah. And uh, for me, it's not an audio track; it's a a, a sense of peace track,
0: hmm.
1: where I'm looking at uh, God. I you know, this time I'm serious. I really will do what you want me to do. Or I want to I want to please you because I love you. And I am fair I and I truly am stuck. If I get to the place where I don't come with an agenda asking him to bless it and I sincerely come with a desire to be his child and to please my daddy, then those are the times I'm able to hear the voice most clearly,
0: I think. Mm, it's good. Thank you, Michael, for uh, these three little chats that we've had on your three little books, which I've said before, I think these are the three best little practical guides on these three important basic things in our life that I've ever read. So thank you for the work that you invested and the creativity you invested in these, and thanks for being on the podcast again today.
1: Hey, you're welcome. I'm going to go write another one because I really enjoy talking to you.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, hold you to it. All right, that was a fun, uh, story-filled conversation with Michael, and I promised uh, before the interview that what we'd do after the interview is explore some of the surprising and even shocking ways that Jesus sort of guides us into following him. What does it look like to actually follow Jesus and follow his will, and uh, Jesus has some very interesting advice In this arena, and I don't know that we've paid that well of attention to this advice. So we're going to explore two facets of how to find and follow God's will through two separate parables that Jesus told that I'm guessing you may not have approached the way we're about to. So the first one is from John chapter 10. So if you're not driving a car and you want to open up your Bible and check this out for yourself, we're going to be in John chapter 10, And we're going to read the the section that's headed in my Jesus-centered Bible, The Good Shepherd and His Sheep. It's John 10, 1 through 21. So let me just read this section to you, and then we'll go back, explore this a little, shed some light on actually what Jesus is, is trying to tell us here. So here's what he says. I tell you the truth, anyone who sneaks over the wall of a sheepfold rather than going through the gate, must surely be a thief and a robber. But the one who enters through the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him, and the sheep recognize his voice, and they come to him. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And after he's gathered his own flock, he walks ahead of them, and they follow him because they know his voice. They won't follow a stranger. They'll run from him because they don't know his voice. So those who heard Jesus use this illustration didn't understand what he meant, which is interesting because they're surrounded by sheep and sheep herders at that time, so it was very familiar to him, to to everyone, what this relationship between sheep and the shepherd uh, was like, but the people didn't understand what he meant. So then it says, he explained it to them, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. All who came before me were thieves and robbers." But the true sheep did not listen to them. Yes, I am the gate. Those who come in through me will be saved. They will come and go freely and will find good pastures. Now, the thief's purpose is to steal and kill and destroy, but my purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. A hired hand will run when he sees a wolf coming. He'll abandon the sheep because they don't belong to him, and he isn't their shepherd. And so the wolf attacks them and scatters the flock. The hired hand runs away because he's working only for the money and doesn't really care about the sheep. But I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep, and they know me, just as my father knows me, and I know the father. So I sacrifice my life for the sheep. Now, I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. Well, that's an interesting side comment from Jesus that we might explore in an entire new podcast at some point, but I have other sheep, too, that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock with one shepherd. The Father loves me because I sacrifice my life so that I may take it back again. No one can take my life from me. I sacrifice it voluntarily, for I have the authority to lay it down when I want to and also to take it up again but this is what my Father has commanded. So it says then, when he said these things, the people were again divided in their opinions about him. Some said, this guy's demon-possessed, and out of his mind won't be the first time somebody said that about Jesus. Why listen to a man like that? Others said, this doesn't sound like a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? So obviously Jesus had created a stir here in this whole uh, sort of, Contextual representation of what his role is and what our role is in this relationship, and uh, let's let's slow down and pay some ridiculous attention to this this story, this metaphor, this parable. First of all, I remember I'm, I'm a my family likes to watch the show The Amazing Race. It's just such a remarkable show, especially when you consider how much stress and pressure it puts on. The relationships between the partners who are involved in this worldwide race facing all of these obstacles, it really leverages the relationships, Um, and it's fascinating to see how people negotiate their relationship when they're under great pressure—the forgiveness, the trust, the the ability to be flexible. So our family is fascinated by this show, and I think about three seasons ago, two or three seasons ago, one of the challenges the racers had was— I think they were in Scotland and they had to each each pair had to find their way to this remote location where there were little herds of sheep closed up in a pen and they had to figure out how to herd those sheep through a little obstacle course that was inside the pen and none of these people had any experience as shepherds and so it was fascinating to watch them figure out how to do this because almost everyone, their first inclination was to make a lot of noise and wave their arms and try to kind of scare the sheep through these different obstacles, and the sheep absolutely rebelled against that kind of methodology. But some of the teams rather quickly learned that if they were just calm and approached the sheep in a calm way and gave them firm direction in a calm way— that the sheep quickly sensed they could trust that, that, those two people, and they started to do what those partners asked them to do. It was fascinating to watch this, and I, I just couldn't help but think about this passage that Jesus was talking about, um, ha, what, it, what the dynamic is between a shepherd and a sheep. So let's slow down a little and, uh, and kind of walk through this. So the first thing he says right off the bat is he says, sheep... My sheep will know my voice. I saw a YouTube video once where um, they tested this whole idea of the sheep know the shepherd's voice. Uh, It was with a little tour group, and the shepherd challenged people on the tour group to try to get the sheep to come to the fence to see them. So the people tried to call the sheep over, and the sheep just ignored them like they didn't exist. And then the shepherd said, watch this. And he just turned and called the sheep to come over to the fence, and they all perked up their heads and just started trotting over to the fence. It was amazing to watch. And the, the thing about this is it uh, the sheep did understand the tenor of their shepherd's voice. They understood the, the, the nuances and subtleties of their shepherd's voice, and because they recognized who it was, they had no trouble... Coming to the fence. They weren't scared to. Um, Jesus follows that by saying, Well, they're not going to follow a stranger. And that, the YouTube video that I watched proves it, that they just won't follow a stranger. So, embedded in that understanding is we either know the voice of Jesus or we treat him like a stranger. And if we don't know him very well, he is a stranger to us. And that's going to make it difficult for us to follow his voice if he's a stranger. So one, one clear pathway to helping us to understand better his will is the same thing we, uh, Michael and I talked about. Having a closer relationship with him immediately translates to knowing his voice better. And it's not just any voice, it's really understanding the nuances of who Jesus is. That's why this podcast is called Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. We want a ridiculous amount of attention To be spent on the details of the heart of Jesus, because the more we pay attention to the heart of Jesus, the closer we get to him, the better we know his voice. So when he calls and guides and directs, we trust that voice instead of being confused because it sounds like the voice of a stranger. Now along the way, Jesus says an interesting thing. He says he's not only the shepherd coming through the gate, that's how he starts off his parable, that, that uh, the gatekeeper will allow the real shepherd to come through the gate, where, whereas a thief has to climb over the wall. But then he shifts gears when the people say they don't understand his parable. He shifts gears and he says, well, I'm not only the shepherd walking through the gate, I'm the gate itself. <laughs> I am the way in and out of, of the sheep. So th- this is fascinating. Uh, Jesus says things like this more often than we think. He says things like, "Um, I'm not pointing the way to life, I am life. I'm not showing you the direction where the well is, I'm the well itself. I'm not revealing the truth, I am the truth itself. And here Jesus is saying, "Um, I'm not just walking through the gate, I am the gate itself. Uh, I am the opening into the sheep pen, where the sheep can go in and out, and they they go in and out, he says, um, freely, because they trust who he is. So it's uh, he's starting to hint at the freedom that comes when we have a more intimate relationship with Jesus. We are more free to go in and out. We talked last week with the Becky Nader about uh, this question of, do we have to get everything right? Do we have to make every plan A decision or choice in our life with Jesus, and Becky suggested, I think very truly, that there are some things that Jesus says to us, you know, choose that or that, it doesn't matter to me that much, because I'm going to do something beautiful with whatever direction you take in this situation, as long as obviously it's not a sinful choice, I'm going to do something with whatever direction you take. Well, you get the feeling of the sheep being able to go in and out freely through the gate because they trust their shepherd, so they have a greater level of freedom because they trust that gate. And what Jesus says is he's his mission in life is to help us find good pastures. And he, he gets specific and says, I've come to give you a rich and satisfying life. Now, this is something very interesting about this, I think it's worthwhile stopping for a second, he didn't say he's come to give us a happy life. Not necessarily a happy life, he came to give us a rich and satisfying life. Now, often a rich and satisfying life leads to happiness, but not all the time. And I think this really does fit my own experience of my own growing relationship with Jesus. My life has become more rich and satisfying the more intimate I've become with him. But it hasn't always meant that those seasons of life where it's really rich and satisfying also produce a lot of happiness. They produce something deeper and more sustaining, rich and satisfying. So that's his promise, that he wants to lead us into pastures where we can find rich and satisfying life in those pastures. Then the last thing he says is, I'm, here's, here's one thing you've got to know about me as a shepherd. This is the kind of shepherd I am, I sacrifice my life for the sheep, and I am right now sacrificing my life for you. That That is a distinctive about me. I'm not a hired hand here. I am giving up my life for my sheep. I will die for my sheep. In fact, in some passages it says that Jesus, um, in, when he references himself as the gate, it means that he's laying across the opening to the enclosure of the sheep so that if any thief or or enemy, or predator tries to get at the sheep, they have to come past him. And this is his promise about what, what, who he is and what he is. He is the one who lays across the gate of our life and says, no one gets gets to you if they don't come past me. I will die for you, which is such a powerful promise in our life. So the last thing he says is that you can know me as well as my Father knows me. So this idea that we can't really know Jesus, because part of him is just a mystery, and, you know, we can't really understand the heart of God, because there's so much mystery locked in him. In the Jesus-centered life, I, I point out in a variety of ways that Jesus actually came to be known, and he wants us to know him as well as his own Father knows him. That's his invitation. And and if we're on that path and on that journey to know Jesus as well as his Father knows him, then following his will, is it becomes more like breathing, more like second nature to us, as Michael and I talked about. All right, let's shift to the second parable, and we'll close with this one. This parable, uh, I call it the three loaves of bread parable. I can't wait. I think I'm going to be um, guest preaching at my church uh, sometime in the next couple of months, around the time Spiritual Grit is released and i've already decided that i want to title whatever it is i do three loaves of bread and it comes from this parable it's from luke chapter 11 5 through 13 so if you're not driving and you want to open it up it's luke 11 5 through 13 and uh, let me just read you this little story so this is jesus speaking and he's in it's in the context of him teaching his disciples about, about prayer because they asked him can you teach us how to pray and really uh, the context for this is, how do we find and follow the will of God? And so Jesus is trying to help his disciples understand what that's like. So here's what he says. He tells this little story. He says, suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight, wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit, and I have nothing for him to eat. And s- suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me! The door's locked for the night, and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, though he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he'll get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. So I tell you, keep on asking, and you'll receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking, and you'll find. Keep on knocking, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And everyone who seeks, finds. And to everyone who knocks, the door will be opened. You fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So, if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? So, I love this story because, A, because we don't hear it very much in church, because it's one of those weird stories that Jesus tells. it, it, it's and, and it gets even weirder and more shocking if you think about this. In this story, we are the needy person who's had somebody show up unexpectedly, and we have a need. We, we don't have enough anything to feed our unannounced guests, so we go to our best friend's house, even though it's late, and knock on the door hoping we can borrow three loaves of bread. So we are the needy person in this parable, and guess what? Jesus is the homeowner, <laughs> the one who's already closed up his house, the family's in bed, and he says, "I, you know what? I'm done for the night. I'm not coming down there. I'm not giving you what you're asking for. So this unexpected thing that happens uh, sets forth a need for help, which is a common situation in our life. We often go to Jesus to for help and guidance. Um, when unexpected things happen and we need guidance from Him, we need we need help. And in this story, um, Jesus says, "Nope, <laughs> um, uh, it's too late. I'm not getting out of bed. Uh, I'm not going to give you help." And then Jesus says, "But the friend who needs help, instead of giving up, keeps knocking on the door, just knocking and knocking." And Jesus says, "You know, the the guy in the story, he's not gonna he didn't get out of bed because of the sake of his friendship." finally got out of bed because of the shameless persistence of his friend. And then Jesus says, hey, have that same kind of shameless persistence when you pray. Keep on asking, keep on seeking, keep on knocking, keep on persisting. And And the, the question is, well, why is Jesus highlighting this in, in this way, and why is he putting himself in this light? Uh, why is he elevating persistence so high. And I, I think, and uh, 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 this won't be a surprise for those of you who've listened to this podcast for a long time, but what Jesus is after is our heart. And in this story, the heart of the friend who suddenly has a need for help is surfaces in the context of not getting what he wants right away. And so instead of it just being an easy thing to drop, you know, oh, well, I guess I'm not going to get what I want, Instead, what comes out is the courageous, persistent heart of the friend who says, I am not leaving until you get down here. You're my friend. I need help. I need three loaves of bread. So I love the persistence, that, that, that phrase, shameless persistence, that Jesus is elevating. And look, he's actually inviting us to have shameless persistence with him, to surface our heart, surface our passion, surface our determination. This is essentially one of the themes of spiritual grit, which is uh, coming out, in, uh, as I said, in a few weeks. It's it's one of the underlying backbones of that whole book, is that one of the things Jesus likes to surface in in the people that he meets is their shameless persistence, their backbone, their determination, their strength, their grit. He introduces hardship into people's lives because he's trying to surface something that is more than passivity. He wants them to be all in with them. So there's no bait and switch here. The friend is asking for loaves of bread, and Jesus says, "Uh, okay, the the homeowner's going to give you loaves of bread. And then he later goes on to say, you know, uh, you guys are evil, but even when your son asks you for something, you don't give him a scorpion instead. Why would I give you something harmful to you or something that isn't fundamentally what you're asking for? Why would I do that? I'm a I'm a good father, I'm a good friend. I study you. I'll give you what's best for you. Don't don't worry. Um, I I'm not gonna jack with you. I'm not gonna do a bait and switch on you. So. These two stories, two different facets of what it means to pursue the will of God, come at this from two different directions. One is getting to know Jesus so deeply that that he can guide us, like as if we are dancing the tango, or as if we are sheep who know his voice so well. And the other facet is simply uh, the, the passion that we have in our approach to our relationship with him, and in our approach to understanding and knowing his will. Are we all in with that or not? Will we persist with it or not? How quickly will we give up? So just a few ways as we wrap up to think about uh, our own pursuit of God's will in our life, just playful ways that that I do in my own life. I thought I'd throw out a few examples for you that, that may, maybe one of these will resonate with you. The first one is what I call psalmorama. I've talked about this a little bit in past episodes. It's, uh, you know, Michael talked about how every person has a measure of faith for a certain way of conducting their relationship with God. Um, not everyone has uh, the faith to lay hands on others and, and bring healing into their lives, but some people seem to have a measure of faith for that. I have a measure of faith for simply asking Jesus to give me a number, in, uh, and it's a number between 1 and 151 that corresponds to the number of psalms, and I just I just ask him for a number. Jesus, give me a number, and I get a, a chapter number and a verse number. And then I just flip open to where that is, and I, I find the verse, and I read the context if I need to, and then I ask Jesus, what is it you're trying to say to me? So I have to say, I do this all the time, almost daily, and it's a very playful, intimate way that I carry on a conversation with Jesus. He almost always—I I can I can't even think of the last time— when I did this, I didn't find something that he was trying to say to me that was relevant to me in 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 what I was facing that day. So I call that rama. Jesus, just give me a number, and then I ask for a chapter and a verse, and then I just go there, and then I ask him, what is it you have for me here? And then I wait. Another way that I, I often do this, too, is that I call this throwing out a fishing line and waiting for a bite. So that's when you have something that you're really needing guidance about, you really wanting to know the heart of Jesus about something, and so you throw it out there all the time. I do this kind of silently throughout my day when I'm thinking about this thing, whatever it is that I need guidance for. I throw it out there on the water, and then I'm vigilant. I'm waiting for the bite. I don't forget about my line like I walk away from my pole and come back at the end of the day. I'm watching. I used to, when I was a kid, uh, we used to vacation um, at this ranch in the Grand Tetons of Wyoming. And I went fishing every day with my dad. And we would go to lakes to fish, not so much streams. And lake fishing usually involved a bobber, where you'd have this little floaty ball that you'd put about uh, six or six feet above where the bait is. And you'd throw it out there in the lake. And then you'd wait for the bobber to kind of jerk underneath the surface of the lake. And you knew that you had a fish on the line then. So when I say I'm throwing out a fishing line for Jesus, that's what I'm doing. I'm throwing it out on the lake, and then I'm watching the bobber. I'm paying attention throughout my day for a bite, to, to see where he might guide and direct me. So it, it means a kind of a vigilant attitude after I throw it out there. Another way is to simply ask. As Michael said, one of the simplest things we can do is just simply ask Jesus for guidance, and here's, here's something I want to add to that, just as some helpful borders around this. When I ask Jesus for Uh, guidance about something, um, it's now second nature for me to first take authority over my own voice, and then take authority over the voice of his enemy. And we have authority to do both of these things, and then I simply ask Jesus, I only want to hear your voice now. I've shut my own voice up, and I'm shutting up the voice of the enemy right now, I just want to hear your voice, Jesus. That's my little preamble, and then I wait and receive whatever he has to give like a little child. Uh, sometimes I use the metaphor of be be like a catcher's mitt. So you're just you're open, and you're just waiting for the pitch to come across the plate, and you're going to grab it when it comes across the plate. So that's the posture I have once I've taken authority over my own voice and the voice of the enemy, and I ask Jesus, would you speak to me? Would you guide me? The last thing is just just a a, a thing that's sort of a, a basis for everything we do. In our life with Jesus. Just infect yourself every day with the heart of Jesus. No matter where it is you're reading in the Bible, I just encourage you to spend at least a little bit of time, even randomly, in one of the four Gospels, and the, the question that you're asking always uh, when you read a little chunk of something Jesus said or did is, why did he say or do that? Why did he say or do that? That is the question that will help you get infected with his heart, So when you ask why he said or did that, then pause and wait until truth starts to surface for you, because that's the Holy Spirit's role to help you understand the heart of Jesus. So every day, infect yourself with a little bit of the heart of Jesus, and as you do, you'll subtly, slowly draw closer and closer to him, so that his voice becomes less and less a stranger to you, and more and more a close friend. Well, gang, thanks for listening. Uh, remember, you can find out more information, but in further detail about everything we've talked about today on our Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus.com website. You can find our podcast section. You're looking for season three, episode 12. Don't forget, The Unreasonable Jesus just released uh, about a little over a week ago. There will be a link on our podcast section to, to go check out. The Unreasonable Jesus, there'll be a link for The Jesus-Centered Life and The Jesus-Centered Bible as well, and links to all three of these books that Michael Kiefer has written. How do I pray? How do I read the Bible? And how do I know God's will? Again, this is Paying Ridiculous Attention to Jesus. It's a podcast from Lifetree. Subscribe to us on iTunes for all the latest podcasts, and we'll talk again.